Hey everybody, welcome to Emmaus Way. My name is Mark. I'm not, uh, Wade did not cut his hair and, uh, and show up looking different tonight. Uh, my name is Mark. So we're here, we're going to be doing uh, several songs tonight that hopefully will work themselves into the conversation. Um, and we want you guys involved in the music tonight as well. We'll be asking you to stand at one point. Um, but we're going to start out with one that you guys are already familiar with. All I need is everything.
Hi, everybody. I'm Tim, and welcome to Emmaus Way. Uh, we say practically every week that uh, this is a community that gathers for lots of reasons. We gather each uh, week to surround ourselves at the table where we get to embody, live out the resurrected life, uh, live out the jubilee that was uh, promised and prefigured in the Jewish worship times as they gave of themselves and gave up their property even to make a just society. So we gather at that table. We also gather to hear each other's voices, and, and that's in music, it's in Art. It's in uh, interpreting the text together. So uh, it's, a, it's always a privilege to be here. And one of the things that we hope that we're doing as a community is that we're, we're listening and we're telling stories of redemption and stories of creation. We're noticing the work of God in our community. We're noticing the things that need to be encountered by the work of God in our community. And we're surrounding ourselves in that agenda rather than in some ways creating the agenda ourselves. So it's always a, a pleasure to gather with you guys and circle around worship. It's also, thanks guys for leading worship tonight. Uh, Mark has been working on a, a really nice, I've been listening to your music that he's almost finished with a CD that he wrote in Samoa. So it's, it's great to have him back and playing. And Amanda, one of my tricks like to Sunday evenings is if I can like sit in front of Amanda, it's like one of my nights to like sound good. <laughs> but so thank you guys and Philip and others for leading worship tonight and, uh, and doing a part of that. Hey, there's a few things here to remind you of. And Jenny, you're going to have to help me because we had a staff retreat yesterday. Um, and there may be a couple of things to remember. But one is um, kind of like this crazy lead team faux pas that we had in terms of timing. We, we, last year, we remembered moving to six and uh, for Sunday evenings and, and thinking, okay, well, that's what we do in the summers. But actually, we did it last year because we couldn't get in the space earlier enough. And so, uh, so remembering that, um, we, we're wanting to move back to five, kind of our normal time. Um, and we won't do it next week but we'll do it on July 3rd. So one more week at six and, and apologies. Like if you've got like small kids and they like clubbed you all the way home after church one night, because it was so late and they're normally sleeping. Uh, uh, that, that was like, I don't know what, how we did that, but anyway, we're, we're, so we're changing back to five. Is that right, Jenny on the third? And, um, also, on the 3rd, um, we typically, we did this last year for the 4th of July, and we want to do this again, is we had a wonderful meal party and prayer gathering, kind of a liturgical prayer gathering that in some ways uh, um, allowed us to not only enjoy the date, understanding that people are doing lots of things that weekend. So on the 3rd, we're going to have a um, kind of a grill out here from 5 to 6, and the church is going to provide burgers hot dogs, veggie burgers, uh, I think sodas and stuff like that. And we're just asking people if you can to bring sides like chips or a salad or a dessert or something like that. And we're going to eat from five to six kind of in the back in the community room in the back. And then we're going to gather here from six to six thirty and do a, kind of a prayer, a prayer liturgy for our community. We did it last year, Dan and Amy and I worked together on it. It was really fun to prepare as well as for us to do. And so, uh, so expect on the third, a pretty casual, evening. It's the kind of thing that you can zoom in if you're at a family gathering or something like that, or, uh, or if you're heading back out. I think a lot of people went to Bulls games last year and it was fireworks and all those things. So anyway, hopefully that'll be a good evening of, of worship prayer, but really uh, kind of enjoying each other's uh, company and community together. Jenny, did I forget anything else that's like a major, a major calendar thing? Okay, great. Well, it's a delight to see 
everybody here tonight. And, uh, and one other thing I wanted to call your attention to is we're going to be tonight in Psalm 8, which is, a, a, if we were all Jewish, this would have been a very famous chorus. You'll recognize it because you probably uh, grew up singing a youth group song kind of oriented around this. But, uh, but Mark and, and Philip and, uh, and uh, Amanda have done a great job letting us kind of start the singing of this hymn uh, through the music. And as, as we read this hymn several times tonight, You'll note that in many ways, we're grabbing in the music tonight many of the themes. Uh, One is things like interdependence, uh, the power of our own weakness, uh, a variety of things. So uh, enjoy this music as we kind of prepare to to settle in for the conversation tonight. Cool. Thanks a lot, Tim. Um, The next song we're going to do is an Alanis Morissette song. I don't know if we've ever done an Alanis Morissette song here or not. Some of you might say with good reason. But no, I I think she's a fantastic writer, actually. Um, one of the things that came to mind out of, out of our text tonight was Psalm 8. Uh, if you look at verse, do you guys have sheets? I can't remember. Uh, verse 5 says, You have made man a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned them with glory and honor. One of the things that, that I think came out of text group this week is, is the idea that we are exalted in our weakness. Um, that that is one of the chief places that we are in contact with the divine. And so uh, even when we're in the presence of one another with our failures, as we bring our failures to community, um, that becomes one of the places that God is manifest in us. I think this song does a really good job of talking about that. I think it does a good job of, of bringing out how it is in our failures that we ultimately find presence.
going to do something we rarely do in the maze way. We're going to ask you to stand for the next song. This is a little bit weird, especially because we're not standing as musicians. We're, we're sitting because it would be way too much to adjust and Philip would have to be bent over and it would be weird. So um, this is sort of the beginning of the conversation. So uh, we're seeing this as sort of the, the beginning of you guys speaking to one another, speaking into one another's lives, speaking to uh, the holy, speaking to God um, and the beginning of, of the evening of conversation.
Oh, keep standing. I think that'd be a great tradition to kind of stand when, when I come to the stool. No. <laughs> One of those little fantasies that's never hail, hail never to the should. chief. Um, Hey, one of the things I should have said, Mark, you, you and uh, Philip are ahead of me on this. So this is Trinity Sunday as well. And one of the, t- the texts that we'll see, uh, Psalm 8 tonight, we'll, you'll see why that's one of the traditional church texts for Trinity Sunday. But well chosen there, uh, whoever selected that song. Um, as, uh, as kind of as our tradition, uh, before we begin our dialogue, we can give you an opportunity to stand up, offer each other the peace of Christ. If you're beside somebody you don't know, introduce yourself, and I'll give us a shout. And we have, actually, I've remembered two more announcements that we'll do after that. But stand up, offer each other the peace of Christ. Hey, just a quick reminder that the Wild Goose Festival is this week. It starts on Thursday in Shikori Hills, Thursday through Sunday. Uh, should be amazing. It's a really, really diverse setting of worship, art, spirituality. Uh, I got invited to be in a, uh, a prayer sweat lodge uh, uh, at 7 a.m. on, uh, I think, Saturday morning with uh, Richard Twist, who's this great uh, uh, Native American theologian. I mean, it's just it's going to be some some really unique opportunities. Uh, some people that I hold dear, Brian McLaren and Phyllis Tickle, and uh, there's a whole list of people that are involved in camping, and I think a lot of us are going to go out and, and back and forth. Um, I think I'm planning to be out there on Friday and Saturday. Um, so anyway, uh, if you need information on that, uh, Jenny, what's the website? Do you remember, is it, is it uh, loggoosefestival. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you can you can like uh, you can like Google it, and you'll it'll pop up as well as the fears of the uh, of of the the far crazy crowd. <laughs> what does Christianity come to? Yes, Jenny. Yeah, is anybody volunteering? Is anybody? Uh, uh, I think we're doing parking. You're going to be there as a volunteer in any. In any. Yeah, 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 yeah. Good. There seems to be some. I th- and I think if you're volunteering, you, you get in free. Is that? I think that's the deal. So anyway, hey, Dave Eford has uh, an update for us in terms of uh, finances and paying the bills and all those things. So go for it. Not nearly as exciting as the sweat lodge. But... <laughs> we can actually do like that, though. That might be something yeah. to do like at a next Ecclesia meeting is we could I, could. I think we'd get Travis on there. I think, Travis, could you make us a sweat lodge in this room? That's right. We've actually had in both, uh, I remember in the loft a couple of times when that air conditioning went out uh, over Francesca's, we had our own sweat lodge uh, many a time. But <laughs> Well, anyway, not to get us off topic, but the, um, the, the amount of money that we brought in through May is, is a lot. It's $32,300, so we're really excited about that. Thanks to everybody who's contributed. We really appreciate it. Um, and the exciting news, the good news to that is that's 4% more than we brought in last year at this time. And our budget this year is the same as it was last year. So we feel like we're in a pretty good spot. Um, Now, the the caution with that is that last year we had a really good November and December. So we're counting on that again this year. We're still about $7,500 behind the mark um, that we would be at if every month was the same. So I guess we're still, if you want to think of it, we're $7,500 below where we would like to be if the line were consistent. We know from last year that it's a little slower than summer getting it here and then it picks up at the end. So we're not panicked about that, but, but we're excited about where we are. And thanks to everybody for the contributions. Thank you, and Dave. We never say this to 
the contributions are in the bowl. We, we do accept contributions. <laughs> <laughs> the, bowl, the silver bowl near the door is where we take checks. There's envelopes. You put a check in there. We accept donations over the internet using PayPal. I think we pay like a 2% charge, but that's fine. Um, and we are working on stock gifts. And we're encouraging folks to, particularly regular givers, to set up regular contributions, particularly over the summer, because our contributions tend to be a little less consistent over the summer. Anyway, thanks a lot. Thanks, Dave, and thanks for all the work that you do on that. That's Dave's way of saying, hey, don't make me bring out, like, the World Vision photos again, like <laughs> last year for November. <laughs> no. Hey, um, tonight um, we're in Psalm 8, which is um, a wonderful, it's a traditional text. Um, it, you know, why don't you sit it in front of you here as we're, we're starting to kind of jump into this and give you a little bit of a backdrop and, and also a little bit of an avenue of how we want to approach the, the text tonight. But uh, if you will, pray with me. God, thank you for uh, these tremendous words of hope and challenge. May we receive them in both ways. Uh, may the conversation of this community be uh, uh, the conversations, uh, words of imagination, of challenge, of correction, of new ideas, of, of vision. Uh, may you uh, not only speak through us, but uh, allow us to hear each other well today. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, this text. Um, is in some ways, if you could imagine this, uh, no one's really sure when it was written, uh, this, when this song was written and collected and became part of, of, the, of uh, Hebrew worship and, and certainly became part of their Psalter and the, the Hebrew scriptures. But in some ways, you know, like if you're at a football game, uh, inevitably in America, somebody's going to stick up like a John 3.16 sign. Uh, most of you guys aren't like old enough to remember. You remember like the, the, the multicolored Afro guy that was like at every sporting event with John 3.16. And there was, there was some way that some would say, well, that, that text is central to, to one's Christian faith. And, and, and many would argue that uh, it, using that same logic, um, Psalm 8 would have that kind kind of John 3.16-esque kind of centrality to uh, the worship of the Hebrews. This is a text I would imagine, nobody's told me this, but I would imagine that this is one when it was read in synagogue later, when it was read in the temple, when it was read uh, in, you know, by their priest, that they would have all known the words to this. This would have been something that would have been significantly familiar. And maybe it's not surprising, but the New Testament grabs this text as extremely significant. In fact, We've done several uh, in the last couple years. We've actually done several sermons on text that were interpreting this text. Uh, Hebrews 2, 1 Corinthians 15, Matthew 21. Those three are almost all uh, explicit uh, expositions of Psalm 8. And there are many, many references. So it, it's a familiar text. It's a significant text. And it's a powerful text. One of the reasons for that is that it crafts this very strong theology of God as creator. And one of the things I've said many times to us that sometimes our theologies, uh, depending on the traditions that you come from, but many of us have come from traditions where we think of God as a redeemer and we think of the redemption that God uh, offers and sometimes we forget the fact that God is also a creator and was a creator and continues to create and, and God is redeeming the very things that God has created. And this is one of the texts that really balances out that by mentioning both of those roles uh, of both creator and redeemer. And in some ways, um, one of the things that when I've been asked about worship, I mean, what really is worship? My, my quick pithy answer to this 
is that worship is a way of life. It's, it's not something that we just do in a certain moment or do in a certain manner, but it's a way of life. It's a posture before God. And, and maybe at its most base uh, element is the recognition that we were the created and that God is the creator. And so as we kind of sort out what does it mean to be created and known by the creator, loved by the creator, but not the creator, in some ways that begins to sort out kind of a life of worship. And this is a text that certainly kind of pushes us in that thought of what does it mean to be created and what does it mean to be special? Um, and, and you'll see that in several ways. And one of the things I wanted to do tonight is kind of a, a modi- modified Lectio way of doing this text. Because this is not a text necessarily to analyze, but is a text to, in some ways, to sing. And to, to sing in terms of our reading of the text, uh, to sing in terms of our contemplating it, praying this text, so to speak. And so one of the things I'd like to do tonight is read it several times and and give you a little bit of a contemplative space to hear the reading of this text and to respond to this. So if you'll look at Psalm 8, let me give you a little bit of a prompt to this this first reading of this. Um, is If you'll notice, it begins in some ways in, in three verses. And if you have a pencil, you could mark this. But the first three verses are very driven by the idea of the majesty of God, the magnitude of, of, of the triune God is, is in many ways the, the theme of these first three verses. And then it transitions into the place of humanity. We're talking about God. And then for verse four and five, we begin to talk about the place of humanity. And notice there's some tension in that description about what does it mean to be human. And then it ends with this idea of now that we know maybe who we are, what is it, what's the responsibility of human beings? What's the responsibility of, of worshipers? So, so begin with that little prompt of the majesty of God, the place of humanity, and the responsibility of humanity would be one way, and there are others, but it would be one way to kind of arrange this song into kind of organized thought. Um, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask somebody to read this and read it kind of slowly. Let us kind of marinate in this text. And the question that I'm going to ask you, and this is a traditional, if you've ever done Lectio Divina, this is a, a traditional question that begins this. But I'm just going to ask you to comment on a, a word, a phrase, or something that's a part of this, something that you heard said in this text that impressed you. And, and don't feel like you need to answer that in a generalized way. So if Amy says something, she's saying, this impressed me. I, I'm not assuming that Jenny's thinking this. Jenny might have been, uh, might have, have, have sensed something else in the text. So just word, phrase, uh, any aspect of this text that impresses you, challenges you in any way, form, or fashion. So would somebody read this for me? It's uh, Psalm 8. Chelsea, you want to do it? And Gail, you're going to get the second reading. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what are mere mortals that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You've made them a little lower than the heavenly being and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the work of your hands. 
He put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the path of the sea. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Thank you, Chelsea. So um, kind of in a personal reading of this, what, what are some things that jump out at you about this? What are, is there a word, a phrase, a concept here that, that catches your attention? I think the very beginning of the is the Lord, our Lord. Um, the fact that, I mean, they can just say the Lord. He is the one only. But they, they make that designation that, you know, he's ours in the village, and just there's something beautiful in that to me that, you know, it's not just that he's above all, he's, he's ours as well. It's just, yeah, thank you, Laura. I think the majestic, you know, regular everyday sensibilities, like, not a lot feels majestic every day, so I don't know, it kind of, it makes me want to read it every day to speak and see how that instructs, like, if I read it in the morning, I rarely use the word majestic unless it's sarcasm. And that's, it, it's not an adjective that comes up normally. So true. I, I was uh, <coughs> struck by the language, the juxtaposition of the language with, about children and infants with the language about enemies. Like, if you read the first, just that line, that line two, um, that line where verse two starts, you, you might expect for it to end like, through the praise of children and infants, they say sweet things about you, but it's not that at all. It's you've established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and avenger, you know. Um, and that's kind of like really interesting to me. It's such a funky verse that translators have had real difficulty translating it because the juxtaposition between stronghold and infants has led. I don't know. Uh, you're looking at a version that keeps that in, and many do, but many don't because they think surely that has to be the wrong word. But uh, I think you're right. Yeah. Is it about rulers over the works of your hands? Um, kind of. Um, it kind of offends me. <laughs> um, I, I I I feel like we're we're not benevolent rulers. We're we're not very good at this. And the only thing that that we do in in kind of ruling is is protect these creatures from ourselves and and and, and kind of creation from ourselves. Yeah, there's a real potential, an honest potential of reading this psalm as a lament uh, in that way. Yeah, hold on to that thought because the second reading is going to to grab that that motif very strongly. That's a great point. I like the juxtaposition. You go from the infinity of space in verse three to verse four to the words mere mortals. You know, so you just have this juxtaposition of infinity and mortality. Yeah, and then Luke, as Luke points out, and we went from infinity to mere mortals to rulers. I mean, there's a dramatic movement in this. It, it leaves us in a quandary of what it means to be human. Very true. I heard somebody over here, maybe. Maybe not. Oh, yeah, David. Verse um, four, just that question of, you know, what are mere mortals that you're mindful of and human beings that you care for? Them? I mean, that to me just strikes the idea that. We're trying to humble ourselves and realize that we have all these flaws and trying to deal with those flaws in relation to our idea of God and what does he mean for us. And so how do you approach him knowing 
all these flaws that we have. Um, we don't have to we're trying to understand our relationship with there. I think that's just a very difficult you know, question to ask. We try to understand the answer that we're getting back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Other reactions to the text, things that stood out to you. Sort of thinking about that is, is, you know, some of the, some of my upbringing um, in certain evangelical circles or, or whatever would have really emphasized that verse four. What are mere works? You know, we, we are nothing. We are scrounging around worms in the dirt. You know, but this doesn't really say that. It's asking that as a question, and then in verse five, it's saying, "Well, what are mere mortals? Well, you've made them a little lower than the heavenly beings." a little in that movie, that there is some like spark of beauty in humankind. And the writer of Hebrews grabs that idea and says, here's why this was written to not angels, but human beings, which seems significant. Yeah. Now, I want to ask us to read this again. Those were reactions and personal reactions and good ones. Um, it, another, tr- another aspect of this, this kind of modified Lectio that we're doing tonight is besides a personal reading of the text is what one might call a moral or a missional reading of the text. And as I read this the first time with, uh, with Hannah and Amy and uh, uh, Dan and, um, and Josh and the text crew, one of the things that I, I think I remember saying was, this is a text that has a lot of implicit imperatives to it. Last week we looked at a text that had a lot of explicit imperatives, ones that were hard, rejoice in suffering. This is one that if you kind of spin it, it, it has some things. And it's interesting, Luke and David took us there, is that David, you are asking the question of one that I don't think people always ask when they read something like this is, um, what do I need to change or get right? How do I need to reframe things? And Luke, you're, you're asking that question as well, is that, that uh, I look at maybe the way people have practiced this and go, oh my gosh, surely it shouldn't be prompting that. And so what I'd like for us to do is hear this now from kind of a moral or a missional sense. It's a, it's a, a reading of obligation. And what I'm going to ask you after this is, what does it say to you in terms of what you might do, think, differently, confess, uh, what might you challenge, what might you speak out about. And so, and so um, I'm going to try to prompt some, some kind of moral missional imperatives out of this. Uh, Gail, would you, would you read this for us again? Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what are mere mortals that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky, and the fish in the sea, all that swim in the paths of the sea. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And notice, um, before I ask you this question, uh, notice that this actually could be um, 
organized in a different way. Uh, as, as several of you pointed out, uh, verse 2 has this, after the chorus of how majestic is your name, has this juxtaposition of strength and weakness in a really interesting way. And then the, the middle of it has this juxtaposition between the spectacular, this incredibly spectacular creation of God and, and the uh, obscurity. What are mere mortals in the sense of the spectacular nature of God? And then it turns it around. And another juxtaposition is that between the many and the few. In this case, human beings being implied that they're special because they're few and they have a relationship because of their uniqueness um, with the many, the all that has been created. So let me ask you that question now. As you heard it a second time, did, did, was, were you struck with a, a, any kind of moral imperative or an action item, a, a way to think differently, a, a way to challenge people around you to say, my goodness, uh, maybe we've got this wrong? Yeah, David. I think uh, verse 5. I thought it was really interesting where it says, you made them alone, the heavenly beings, you crowned them with glory and honor. And there's this, at one point, we're almost being, you know, kind of put down a little bit, you know, we're a little bit lower, but yet, it then calls us rulers. And it's odd to think of yourself as a ruler. Like, I never think of myself as a ruler of anything. Um, that's not, you know, a relationship that we, we have there. And I think when you read it that way and understand that we're being called rulers, you now have to think of any relationship that you have with anything below you, starts listening all these things. What does that really mean to be a ruler? If I'm thinking of who's ruling me, um, what, what kind of relationship would that look like? And how can I apply that to things that I'm supposedly a ruler of? Yeah, that's another one of those words we don't use very often, like majestic. Uh, I mean, I, I think I use ruler like after a really good risk game when I've like tortured the kids, you know, and I'm like, salute me, I'm ruler of earth. But other than that, I don't really take that term on very often. So, yeah, what, what's, what's, what's implied in that as, as rulers and, and this strange switch between obscurity and significance in humanity in the text? Other thoughts? Yeah, Travis? Kind of along with that, so yeah, that language of like under your feet and ruler, I mean that can, you can easily think of like strip mining or like dumping pollution into a lake or whatever. But uh, I mean, I think clearly the way the poem very lovingly talks about the created order and the animals and the fish, I mean, it's not explicit, right? Because I think it's assumed that that's going to be a, a loving, you know, relationship the same way that God has with humanity. That it's not a kind of domineering, mm -hmm exploitative type of relationship. So uh, that, there's a bad history there that makes it hard to read, but I think it's... Well, I think it gets back to our theology sometimes. We, we have a, a, sometimes such a strong redemptive theology of kind of evacuation, that God is going to evacuate us from... Uh, a, a burning planet, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, a screw up uh, uh, or a foil that a creation that was made solely that I might be redeemed in it rather than in some ways that the, the strong challenge of the text, as you're saying, is that the creation was made lovingly by God. Uh, but in some ways, our our theological prejudices may see uh, the possibility of dominion in this uh, rather than in some ways thankfulness and and stewardship and more to say about that but that's a great great point that's kind of what struck me too and just like extending what you know travis and you talked about but um just the fact that he made he put everything under our feet like that that's a responsibility but it's also a blessing like all of these things that we have are a blessing given to us by god they're gifts to us from god 
And I was just struck by the fact that, you know, in our culture, we're always, you know, trying to keep up with the Joneses and feel like we never have enough, but he gave us everything. You know, he gave us all of creation in that way. And so just being mindful of everything that we have being his and a gift to us. Yeah, isn't it interesting that our language of possession and ownership kind of gets turned against us? Because how do you possess a lake, you know, to some degree? Uh, though we try, you know, and, and to some degree, it, there's a challenge in the text that what has been given is not what we value. Um, it, very strongly. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah, Mike. And I'll get you in. I'm not surprised everyone's uh, sort of looking at the word rulers. And, you know, part of reading the Psalms is always to, to read what the um, limited capacity of the person who's praying is saying. You know, and there's almost an irony in using the word rulers. And under their feet, you know, because under your feet can also mean to crush things. And um, so just as another another psalm says, you know, blessed are they dash their children's head against rock. You know, I'm wondering about this verse five, how much or six, how much this is a almost an ironic critique of the human sense of dominion and possession. Yeah, I, as we close up tonight, and we're not right this moment, but I, I, I have kind of a, a joke from text group of three sermons that I would preach about this text if I was preaching a sermon about it, and one is about irony. I don't know if you guys know Mike, by the way. Mike is a theologian, teaches at, at, uh, at Shaw Divinity School, and has also been for, how many years were you uh, a pastor at Mount Level um, Baptist? which is one of our primary partners with Durham Can. Mark, Mike is one of the smartest people I know. So I was like, I was trying to like recognize somebody here because I was like, oh my God, Mike, Mike can, be, can be corrected here in a big way. But uh, it's good to have you here. Uh, uh, actually, he lives in Austin now, but I guess you're traveling to back in town to teach. Yeah, but I'm glad you're still at, at Shaw. Jesse, <laughs> I keep skipping you. Well, easy to read this in the kind of like post-industrial context and, and get agitated about ruler being rulers and how we've really screwed that up but you know a lot of that has happened in the past hundred years and if you think about where they were at th this was a like subsistence farming kind of culture there wasn't a lot of damage they could do at that point uh, and I think that I think if you read it from that perspective or try two two kind of moral imperatives come to mind to me one is the this in verse two this idea of a stronghold well in that setting like that would be pretty important to to you know I, it just makes me think of lord of the rings and the two towers i think when they have to go into the you know into the stronghold because these these uh orcs are coming after them and and it's like you do you think about these like warring tribes and a stronghold is like you know it's everything it's your savior it's your savior mm -hmm. uh, and so to get that children and infants need to praise god you know that, that there's a it's it's pretty amazing to me and so the moral i guess that i pick up there is we have to teach children to praise god mm -hmm. 
um, and, and like life is at stake. Mm-hmm. Um, and the second one, I guess, having to do with the rulers um, is that in a, subsist- in, a, in, you know, a subsistence kind of economy, if, if, if we control the sources of food, then we have to make sure everybody has some. So that's the, mm-hmm. I guess that's the other one. And you know, you said something that's a great segue uh, that I wanted to grab, but before I even do that, uh, one of the, I've traveled in a couple places, one, one place in Egypt, this was kind of a saying that I heard from, from, from folks, is um, you, you, you don't have a car without a horn because in the rules in Cairo, the right of way is the person with the loudest, most frightening, overwhelming horn. And, 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 I was, and, and a couple of people showed me in the boot of their car, they did not have a spare tire. They had a spare horn because if you had a horn problem, you did not have a vehicle. Uh, the, the side saying of that was that also with, you don't have a house without a gate. Uh, and, and in some ways, so that might be some of the thinking here. Think of the shame that Nehemiah saw when Jerusalem had no walls. There really wasn't a city because there were no walls. So that's maybe how they would have thought about stronghold here. Um, but then here's one more twist on this. The people who are hearing this, um, I, I, we, we use the term in text today. If this were the prayer book of the wounded the weak or the damned, how would they hear this psalm? And, and you're taking us there that way, Jesse, that, that, you know, for us, again, we say this almost every week, it's really easy for us to hear it in one way because we're people of immense privilege. But many times the writers who are singing these songs had little or no power or privilege. So one or two people tell me, how would you hear this if you identified yourself in that way? I think that you, you have more power than you would have thought. Say you make him rule it over with your hand. So there is a, a sense of I have control over what I do um, and what I create and what I make. Yeah, there's a privileging of people who have been in some ways trod over in the in the writing of this psalm. And, and it's near what your comment was, Chelsea, that they're gifted in ways that they may not imagine that they were gifted. Actually, I think they would have imagined that. We've, we forget that we don't, you know, rule the universe until it's tornado week or hurricane week. And we go, oh, crap. You know, we really aren't in charge of that, are we? Um, so, yeah. Any, anybody else? Yeah, Jim. First two says something that I don't understand, but I, I think there's something really important in there. If you start with the second half that you've established a stronghold against your enemies silence the foe, and then you go back through the praise of children and infants. It, it speaks to me about uh, if I've got, if I've got um, enemies, how should I be interacting with them? How should I be speaking to them? And if, if we're in the place that you just mentioned of somebody who is an outcast, then it implies that there is a, an untapped power in humility or being in a humble position. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that, Jim, another great segue here because the irony of the rulers thing is it comes out of this thing as, as infants. That, and, and in some ways, the one thing I, I joked with, uh, I think it was Amy or Hannah, I was saying the sermon that I, if I was preaching somewhere about this, it might be like reload <laughs> or surrender as the title of that. And you know, we're a culture that tends to reload, don't we? I mean, we, we, we believe very much in independence, our ability to protect ourselves, take care of the back 40, uh, handle our lives, do all of those things. To the point of this, we use the term dependence in a really negative way. When we're saying dependence, we usually mean codependence or some sort of addiction. Uh, In fact, we almost have to say interdependence to, to turn dependence into a positive word. And so when we're, when we're faced with obstacles, when we're overwhelmed, we tend to arm ourselves or reload. We respond with strength. We feel like the way to kind of manage this world is to manage it with strength. And so when we hear the word ruler, which I think is probably a, a wink and a joke in this, we think, man, I knew I was stronger than I thought I was. I mean, I, there's got to be a missile in, the, in the, uh, the closet that I've overlooked in the junk, so to speak. Um, but ironically, this text is about connectedness and the interdependence of God's created world in a sense that I cannot say that I'm going to set my part, myself apart from the system of God's creation. I, I, I can't do that. And in some ways, our ability to worship that creation, to participate in that creation, or even take on the responsibility of being a steward of that creation begins with understanding our place in, in this created order. And the words of, of, of strong gift are words of not power, but words of responsibility. And in some ways, it's what Jim is saying that our weakness is the way that we respond and place ourselves in God's created agenda. Because when I'm saying I am weak, I'm saying I need to be in relationship with you. I cannot manage my life alone. I can't manage anything alone. I'm not a manager of life. I'm not a manager of God's created world. Uh, But as a community of people who are committed to worshiping, and again, worshiping being this idea of understanding that we're not the creator. We're not the ruler of the world. We're not in control of its fate. We're participating in God's agenda. And it's interesting, Jesus' interpretation of this text was he used it in that manner when he was being taunted by the rulers of his day the the leaders of the synagogue the 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 teachers of the law he quoted this text in matthew and said basically you don't in your power you do not understand what's going on in this world but out of the mouths of infants and out of the mouths of children and babes there comes the truth um, this was such a hard text to translate that, that it's interesting that um, the, the words stronghold and bulwark and all of these other words that you'll find in many of the, the um, translations disappears in certain translations. It, it just says, out of the praise of infants. Uh, but really what the text is saying that is in our infantile almost, our recognizing that we are created by God, that is our strength. And the way that we respond to a world that's filled with injustice and oppression is not 
a, a response that comes from our own power, but in our own weakness when we depend on God's redemptive agenda and God's recreating agenda. So in some ways, the, a lot of the text has an amazing irony, and it's like so much of the scriptures. We find our power in places that we do not expect. We find our power in, in, in our weakness. We find our power in our dependence. We find our power in our independence, interdependence, rather than some ways in our uh, dependence. So as, as you read this, and I, maybe Sarah, you said this, um, the idea that this is a text that you would read again and think again. And, and in some ways, uh, I would encourage us all to do that as we, we we coin that word majestic that we don't say very often. We don't say it often of ourselves. We don't say it often of the world that we're in. In some ways, we can say that word in recognition of the majesty of God's creation, God's redemption, God's plan, and in our weakness and our understanding that we're not in control of those things. We find our place in God's creation. We find our place in God's redemptive work. And in some ways, we are tongue-in-cheek rulers, so to speak. Rulers in that we have huge responsibilities as human beings to continue to place ourselves accurately and properly in the work of God. And in some ways, I would say this, um, we say this a lot in terms of the mission life of this community, is we're quick to say we're not inventing God's mission. Though we'd love to be creative and imaginative and take risks, we are not setting the agenda. And in some ways, our weakness of saying we're not setting the agenda drives us to friendship and partnership and to cross boundaries and lines of comfort and, and lines of division and allows us to operate as redemptive people rather than as what Luke was saying. It's so easy to read this text and say, I'm the master of my own fate. We're the master of our own fate. Heck, we're the master of God's fate. Uh, we can do whatever we want to do. And in some ways, I think the worshipers of Psalm and the readers and the prayers of Psalm 8 would have come to a really different conclusion than that. Uh, they would have heard it as gift. They would have heard it as blessing. It, they would have heard it as words of gift and significance to them. But I don't think they would have received it as uh, the kind of personal significance that we always tend to want to hear in our lives around us. They would have heard their significance in their associations. So uh, delight in this psalm. Read this psalm. Pray this song. Uh, live in the conundrum of who are we but mortal people, but people who have been given vast and significant responsibility. And in some ways, that's the mission posture of the people of God, embracing our humility and embracing our power, our power coming from our humility and our power because we're participating in the agenda of God. Um, I think, guys, you're going to uh, lead us into uh, a song of response to this. I, I can't remember what it was. I think it's, uh, oh, it's Raina, which is a great, I, you know, I always remember this song because we did this at, at Ada's, uh, we may not have done it since, at, at Ada's dedication, but Mark or Philip or Amanda, whoever chose this, I looked at this and said, this is a great song for this moment because it, it rejoices in, in some ways the conundrum of the, of the power and beauty of children. And that's indeed, I think, what we learn uh, from, from that posture and from that reality. Yeah, this song, certainly one of the reasons I wanted us to do it was um, when we look at Psalm 8 and we talked about that verse that Jim brought out, um, 
verse 2, that through the praise of children and infants, you've established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. I was trying to think about who are our foes and uh, who are our avengers. And one of the answers to that, you know, we do a lot of Peter Himmelman songs uh, here, and he's an Orthodox Jew. Um, I think that, that as he's reading this text, I mean, I, I, you know, I can't imagine, I don't know him or anything, but, but as I think about, like, in our modern context, what are our foes and who are our avengers? And, and I, I think, you know, one of the things he says in the last verse here, some say there's no end to the night, and some say the reward just isn't worth the fight. But I'm no stranger to the allure of despair. I've spent a lifetime inside his jaws, but not since I've seen Reina. Reina is the birth of a daughter, and it is in the praise of children and infants that our, our enemies are vanquished, our enemies of despair, our enemies of hopelessness, our enemies of depression, our, our enemies that we face internally, um, that it is through the praise of these children and infants that God vanquishes those foes.
you to table tonight and remind you of, of one other way that um, this text was interpreted in the New Testament. It's interesting. You guys uh, so wonderfully grabbed this tonight, this, this conundrum of Psalm 8, that what are we but mere mortals, but in some ways given this incredibly lofty responsibility and this missional responsibility in God's world. And, and in some ways, the linchpin to participating in that, in that work is, uh, is finding that second verse that that sense that that out of the, the the praise of infants out of the the out of the out of recognizing our mortality our insignificance our weakness um, that's indeed how we participate in the in the agenda of God but there's sometimes there's a misfitted in that that you they have to say there has to be power somewhere and where is that and it's interesting that the writer of Hebrews in chapter 2 um, used this same chorus read the same thing and then basically said I know it's hard if you've been praying this before I know it's hard to understand how how am I human how should I be human? What does it mean to be human? And the writer of Hebrews went on to say that in some ways, this text is, is made real in the person of Jesus. And I'll, I'll give you a couple of words of exposition on this. Uh, this is, he says, but we, we do see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for a while. Uh, in some ways, this is a way of saying that Jesus is the ultimate human being. We understand what it means to be human in the person of Jesus. Now, once a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor. And you think that's right. Jesus was indeed the one who was lower and now crowned with all glory and honor because he's better than us. No, actually, it says crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. 
and by the grace of God might taste death for everyone. So the writer of Hebrews is saying, what an amazing conundrum. Jesus was the ultimate human in suffering more than any, in in tasting death in a more painful way, perhaps even the isolation of God, of being separate from, in some ways, filled with sin, our sins, but also uh, crowned with, with all glory. And at the very end it says, for surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants, you and me. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. So this image of Hebrews as Jesus as the high priest, as a high priest who in, in, has embodied our pain, our suffering, our disillusionment, and the grand possibility of being part of God's created world, God's created vision, God's redemptive vision. So in some ways, the New Testament writers said, this is a hard passage to put our arms around because it's so majestic and grand, but the way that it's been ultimately uh, interpreted is in the person of Jesus. And as we come to the table, um, one of the things that we do every week in, in pouring the wine or juice that represents the blood of Jesus and breaking the bread that represents the body of Christ is that we are celebrating the ultimate humanity of Christ. We're celebrating Jesus's incarnation, Jesus's sacrifice, and then also the ultimate glory of Christ, the, the resurrection of Christ. And we're not saying that it's an abstraction that was kind of neat or a theological concept that feels good. We're saying that we participate in it and we participated in eating and drinking. And so um, our tradition here is we have an open table. Everybody's invited to, uh, to uh, eat and drink in the name of Christ, to place ourselves as, as a part of God's redemptive work and God's redemptive vision. Vision, and even place ourselves as an act of lament because we understand that in many ways we do not do well in participating in this vision every time. So I invite you now to the table to offer the bread and wine to each other, to say this is the body of Christ, this is the blood of Christ, to serve each other and, and recognize that even in our way of doing the Eucharist each week grabs the soul of this text. We're doing it in an interdependent way. We're pouring, we're eating, and we're drinking for each other and with each other. So I invite you now into the celebration of the humanity of Christ and the, the resurrection of Christ. Uh, Join us at the table. <laughs> We're going to call you back with one last song. Um, a song called Everyone's Beautiful that I thought of because of the, uh, the spark of the divine that we talked about being made a little bit lower than the angels.
Thanks, everybody. Hey, I want to give you a quick word of farewell tonight. I hope that you leave tonight with a sense of maybe a strange conundrum of our dignity uh, and our responsibility and our smallness uh, and, and the glory that we have by participating in the, the might of God's redemptive plan. And that indeed, that Waterdeep song, and I love those guys, was a, a great song. I encourage you to hear that on the podcast on Wednesday or Tuesday when it's up and, and raise the question, what indeed is beautiful? Uh, so go in God's peace and mercy. Amen.